Hello, and welcome to the Line Edit Podcast, generously supported by the John Templeton Foundation. I'm your host, James Ryerson. On this podcast, I talk with academics about the craft and process of writing for a popular audience. These folks write about everything from the ethics of parenting, to the neuroscience of fear, to the mysteries of quantum physics. These are short pieces for a wide readership about the big questions. So who am I? I'm an editor at the New York Times, where I've worked for 17 years. Uh, First, I worked at the Sunday Magazine, and for the past 10 years or so, I've been at the Opinion Pages. Before that, I worked at three magazines, Legal Affairs, Lingua Franca, the Review of Academic Life, and Feed, an early online magazine about culture, science, and technology. Over those years, I've worked with all kinds of writers on all kinds of pieces about all kinds of topics, but if I have a specialty, it's working with academics, and that has led to a recurring writing workshop series, also generously funded by the Templeton Foundation, called Beyond the Ivory Tower. For the full background on that, you'll have to listen back to episode one of this podcast series with the psychologist and neuroscientist, Lisa Feldman Barrett. In this episode, I talk with Agnes Callard, an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago, whom I met three years ago during our very first workshop. Over the course of this conversation, which was recorded from our separate homes during the pandemic lockdown, we talk about questions like, does public philosophy actually exist? And if it does, what is it good for? How did a philosopher who had no real interest in doing public philosophy come to be so prolific and accomplished at it? And can you be too likable as an author? Uh, so I'm, I'm thrilled to have uh, with me here today uh, Agnes Callard. Agnes is a, an associate professor in philosophy at the University of Chicago. She does scholarly work in uh, ancient philosophy and ethics and is also the author of a book called Aspiration, The Agency of Becoming with uh, Oxford University Press. I had the, the pleasure of meeting Agnes a couple of years ago in June of 2017 um, during our first um, writing workshop uh, for academics, uh, which was called Beyond the Ivory Tower. Um, and in the two and a half uh, years since, um, she's been a, a prolific public writer, uh, publishing in, in the New York Times and the New Yorker, the Boston Review um, and other publications. She has a regular column in The Point, which is a relatively small but increasingly influential um, intellectual publication uh, based out of uh, Chicago. To judge from uh, just following her on Twitter, she also participates in various uh, live events, um, philosophical discussions in public, uh, and so forth in uh, in Chicago. Uh, so I am tempted to call her a, a consummate public philosopher, but in the true uh, questioning spirit of philosophy, she has also written pointedly about whether public philosophy is a good thing, as well as whether what we call public philosophy is actually a form of philosophy, all of which is to say I couldn't imagine someone uh, more interesting to talk with about writing as a philosopher for a non-academic audience, Uh, not only the kind of practical questions of how to actually do it, or at least how she actually does it, um, but also some of the more abstract questions about about the nature of this kind of enterprise. So um, welcome, Agnes. Um, uh, How are you doing? How have you been? Um, Thank you. Thanks for that introduction. Uh, I'm doing okay. Thanks. How's the lockdown been treating you? Um, I feel like my mind is slowly unraveling. Mm-hmm. I feel like it. I'm getting further and further from the person that I was before. Like it's harder to remember what that was like. So the effects are cumulative in a way that has surprised me. Like I thought 
I would have predicted, well, I'll get into lockdown mode after like a week or two, and then I'll be in that mode and then I'll like snap back. But it seems less like that than like, I'm like slowly becoming a different person than I was before. And this is interesting because your book Aspiration is about the sort of willful process of trying to become a different kind of person than you are and how you do that in a way that's that's sort of rational, as it were. Yeah. And so you're, you're going, you're undergoing a reverse uh, process that is un- unwillful and you're, you're becoming another person without trying. Yes. Gotcha. It feels like kind of like a degradation, like a, like a, uh, no, that's not quite the right word. Something like, um, yeah, something sort of unraveling or falling apart. Um, uh, it has made me realize how much I rely upon just a whole set of external structures um, uh, that include other people, but also just include other buildings um, <laughs> in order to like keep myself organized. I guess that's what it is. It's like a, a kind of disorder has introduced itself into my life. And how many people are living in your uh, household at the moment? Six, including me. Wow. Um, and uh, the protests, are, are they in Chicago affecting your neighborhood? Are you participating in them? How is that um, How is that affecting your life, if at all? They are in my neighborhood. Um, they, they're affecting uh, students a lot, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not teaching this quarter, but um, cause I'm, I'm on leave, but I'm sort of in on the email chains. And I think that they are really having a big impact on the sort of psychological life of students that you Chicago has a very late end. So classes are ongoing. In fact, finals week is coming. Hmm. So this is coming at a time when students are experiencing a lot of school stress and they're, um, on, and they're online, right. They're doing online school and then protests at the same time. So there have been a lot of calls for, um, canceling finals for scheduling events that are responsive to the protest. I had an event yesterday, last night. So I, I've been running a weekly philosophy event series during the mm-hmm. pandemic, uh, kind of online philosophy debate series. I had one last night. It was on why movies matter. We talked about Casablanca, and there was some kind of call to like not have that event or have it be more themed around the protests. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's definitely a sense that like something big is happening and we, and it, and it's affecting our lives and people are not quite sure how it's affecting their lives. And I guess one, one thing that has struck me, you know, as a, as somebody who um, it's not just that I've done a bunch of public writing, I guess, but that by doing all that stuff, I've become better known. Uh, people have wanted me to say something, mm-hmm. uh, make some kind of statement in the form of like explicitly asking me to do so. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm not, that's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and uh, that's something I hadn't anticipated with um, doing more public philosophy is that there's more of an expectation um, that one will assume some kind of position of leadership. And, and has that happened? Have you responded to other requests um, prior to this in that same spirit where people have asked you to weigh in on? I mean, I know I know for the point you did a couple uh, columns about the, the lockdown and the pandemic, um, but they didn't feel particularly assigned. Um, are there other pieces you've done? You did the piece for The New Yorker about... Um, about the sort of higher education in this moment. Um, was that something that, that, that you were asked to do or something you, you've just brought to them? No, there I, I just, I mean, so, so so to some degree, one also feels it, it like other people ask you, but then also there are times when you just feel called to do so and it's the same sort of impulse. Hmm. 
Um, the, I, I, the thing I wrote, I wrote for the New York Times on why philosophers shouldn't sign petitions that did come from being asked to sign a petition mm-hmm. and the person saying like, you know, you're in a position where it would matter if you were to sign this. And I wrote them back saying, I'm not going to sign it, but I will think about this and I'll think about using my platform to discuss this. And I, I think the thing is that often when I, when people call upon me to do that, Maybe and maybe eventually this will have an effect. I'm not going to end up saying the thing that they expected me to say, probably, um, or wanted me to say. Mm-hmm. And so, like, like my instinct with respect to my immediate instinct when people um, brought up the movie event and how we should change it in response to the protest, I was like, maybe I should do an event on like whether it's good for philosophy to be politicized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that was the direction I would have taken it, which would you know, wouldn't have been probably like responsive to this set of concerns that led people to ask me to speak out. So I'm sort of willing to respond, but I feel a kind of pressure, I guess, to be a mouthpiece, basically. Mm-hmm. Like people don't just want me to respond in one way or another. Sometimes they want, they tell me what statement they would like to make, and then they would like me to make that statement. And I've found that frustrating and I don't like it. And so how did, how did all this start with you, the, the sort of non-academic writing? I mean, my, my recollection, which may be wrong, was that when I met you at the workshop in, in, that was held in Boston in, uh, three years ago, that, um, that you had recently gotten tenured, or, or maybe, I don't know how recently it was, but that you had, you, you had, you had gotten tenure and that you were looking to start doing you know, some other kind of writing or writing for other kinds of venues. Um, I can't remember if you had done other writing at that point or whether... Um, or whether you sort of started at that point, how did, how did it all begin for you? I think this was a case where just seeing that um, announcement of the beyond the ivory tower, really, that was the thing that had, like, I I didn't independently um, have the impulse to do it. I was like, this looks cool. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always um, liked, a certain kind of writing that um, I, th- the way I always thought of it to myself was it was the college admissions essay style of writing. Mm-hmm. What do you mean um, by that? When I applied to college, like I was like, wow, it's too bad that there's only one time in your life when you have to write college admissions essays, because this is my genre. I could do this all day. I'm so good at this. My admissions essays were awesome. And I, I wrote so many of them and I could write them quickly and other people like hated it and I loved it. And then I'm like, it's too bad later on. Nobody ever asked you to write those. So I feel like really what happened was like, you know, at some like, you know, decades later, people were like, actually, we want you to write some more college admissions essays. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, so when you were, um, you know, developing, uh, let's say, an adolescence or as a college student, as someone who took reading and writing seriously as something that you wanted to do, and um, obviously taking it seriously as something that you wanted to consume as a reader and a thinker, um, did you have any, uh, you know, were there particular public uh, writers, you know, people doing, let's say, philosophical writing for a wider audience that you were that you were reading and interested in, or or did it, or were you more focused in the, you know, the actual philosophical texts or whatever it was? Yeah, I didn't really read anything uh, uh, in the form of public writing um, as a like teenager uh, or in college. I mean, I read 
a lot of philosophy and novels, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was one, there was this like series of interviews on PBS that were like, it was like Stephen Jay Gould and Dan Dennett and uh, Stephen Hawking. And there were like a bunch of sort of, you know, philosophical um, intellectual types. And there were these long interviews. This is when I was in high school. And um, the person interviewing them was just asking like just sort of generic questions. And I, I hadn't heard of any of these people. For me, that was like the one like public philosophy kind of event. It made a huge impact on me. I, sa- I sat there in front of the TV and like took notes. And I was like, wow, these people are just talking about ideas. Um, and um, that's like a thing you can do. And But it was like decades until I experienced anything else like that again. <laughs> That I mean, I had the similar thing when I was a kid, I would watch Firing Line um, and I was completely gripped by it. And it was only, you know, 20 years later when I found myself, you know, wanting to kind of do reading and writing and editing of, uh, you know, thinkers in a kind of more accessible format that I realized what a formative kind of encounter that had been, um, you know, um, watching that particular show. Um, it's, It's fascinating. Um, so, so you came to the the, the workshop. If, if I, I looked it up, um, so the piece that you brought um, was called "Faith Without Self Deception," and it was um, it was uh, over eight thousand words, which was partially my fault because when I when I originally created the workshop, um, you guys were the kind of real guinea pigs because I didn't know what I was doing at all, and it, expressly we we intended the workshop to be kind of uh, iterative to, to develop it over time. So, so you know, we were trying out different things. And I just sort of naively assumed that in the course of a two day workshop, that would be plenty of time to talk about incredibly long pieces as well as short pieces. And since I had had experience editing both, I thought I would sort of open it up to people to write long or short. But I remember it. So it's not, it's not, it's not a, it wasn't odd that you brought an 8,000 word uh, piece to the workshop. Um, but in the end, it, it did, it did wind up um, running in the times at about um, 1500 words or so. Um, and, um, uh, if I remember, I really encouraged you to, to publish some version of it, although it, it, you wound up working with my tremendously wonderful colleague, Peter Catapano, uh, in the actual editing process. But I, so as a result, I never really kind of had a sense of, of what that process was like for you to go from, you know, uh, something that you wanted to say in 8,000 words to something that you said in 1,500 words. Um, some of that was just eliding sections, but a lot of it was also a form of compression. I'm just curious about that whole experience. Um, did you was the because now you often write in these kind of uh, you know lengths of that sort whether it's for the point or or the times or elsewhere um and uh i'm wondering i'm wondering what that um what, what did you was there any resistance to the process of of compressing was that liberating um how did you experience that as someone doing this kind of writing for the first time yeah so it's funny because like when the, with the original call, you know, it said something like 1500 to 8,000 words. And like, as an academic, I'm like, that means 8,000 words. <laughs> so for me, it literally just, it was as though you had said, write something that is 8,000 words long. Right. And I had no thoughts for that piece beyond that. It was a submission for the uh, workshop, you know, but basically it was as though it, like to me reading that call, it was like, please write something that is 8,000 words long to submit for this workshop to see whether you want to do this thing. And it, I had no further goals for it. Um, uh, other than that, I thought, oh, well, I will use this to like learn something about public writing. Um, I remember there was like, it went on and on about um, 
the sort of genre, like the, the invention of the teenager and like um, mm-hmm. teen, a 17 magazine and the kind of advertising that was in 17 magazine. Like there's, there's just a lot of it, like whole sections of it that were just about that. It was about sort of the teenager as a kind of aspirational category. Um, and that, that all got cut. I thought it was fun, but, um, it was easy to cut. Um, I was very, I had, I was shocked when you told me at the, at the thing itself, like that you thought this could be in the New York times because I had, so I have to have a confession, which is that I had not even heard of the stone when I went to that, um, uh, workshop, right? So I, I had no thought that philosophy sure. could show up in the New York Times. Like that was just not a thing that, you know, uh, a possibility that I was aware of. And, um, but I was also very surprised at the event itself, like it was mostly science people. Uh, and so yeah. I was very much the odd person out. And like, it was clear, like from the, from the um, sort of selections that you gave us in terms of the pieces like from Lisa Barrett and um, you know, there was a certain sort of thing that could be in the newspaper. And like, I got a sense of that from the, um, the selections that we were to read and it was not my thing. So, so I was very surprised uh, and very flattered too. And I I was sort of happy to um, I'm really um, I I would say my great strength is revising. (laughs) I'm really good at, I'm really good at revising. I'm really good at, cutting my own work and throwing parts of it away. I'm not hurt by that. And so like, I was really fine with, I was honored that it could, you know, that you thought it could appear in the New York times and fine with the idea that I would have to revise it. Um, and, uh, fine with cutting all those bits, even though I thought they were fun, but I I hadn't written them with the thought that they would necessarily be published anywhere. Uh, and so that uh, article, uh, Can We Learn to Believe in God, was published in the Times in, in January of 2018. Um, and um, I'm, I'm curious, as someone who you know wasn't uh, looking necessarily to do this kind of writing, um, what your reaction was to having it published? Were you hearing from uh, people, um, philosophers, non-philosophers about the piece? What, what was the experience of just publishing in, in the Times when you weren't uh, really hadn't set out to do that sort of thing? Um, I would say that um, it actually didn't have much of an effect on me mm-hmm. at all. Um, um, uh, I didn't get much feedback. Um, I, uh, I mean, there were the comments, um, but um, the comments don't tend to be of a very high quality. Like most of them, many of them seem to be written by people who didn't even read the piece. So that mm-hmm. didn't feel like a, a very substantive like feedback. Mm-hmm. And um, I think part of it was like at the time people didn't really know who I was. And so it wasn't like people were going to reach out to me because they didn't know me. Um, so like, like when I've published things in the times more recently, I've ha- gotten a lot more feedback than I did that first time. Mm. Um, but I do think it led to like, you know, that led to me being known in ways that um, would only show up later. <laughs> So it's like, I, I, I think I experienced the effects of it for a long time, but in a kind of delayed way. I don't think I experienced much immediately. I was happy to have it there. I like sent it to my family and that was great, but um, I didn't get a lot of immediate feedback. And so what, how do you start, how, how do you continue writing from there? Did, I can't remember, did Peter reach out to you with other ideas for pieces? Did you reach out to him or did you start doing the point stuff? What's, I don't know the exact chronology of how you kind of started to, um, amp up the kind of amount of stuff you were doing. Yeah, I would say 
after that kind of nothing happened for a while actually Mm -hmm. um and then um i did like um so i did a podcast with this economist tyler cowan and a lot of people came to know of me through that um and i then did a sort of couple other podcasts and it was mostly sort of the podcast circuit that i was um kind of doing like public philosophy um I even briefly like had a blog that I just created in order, I think to respond to a post a blog post of Tyler's on like progress in philosophy. And I wanted to write a response and I, and I thought I'd make a blog just to put the response somewhere. Um, and, um, I think when it really got started was that the point came to me Mm. and um, they were doing an issue on like children, what are children for? And they wanted um, to, uh, you know, do it. Did I want to be one of the contributors? And I said, sure. That was a longer piece. That was like maybe 4,000, 5,000 words. And then somehow in connect, and then they really liked that. And they asked whether I wanted to do like a regular column. And um, I'd in the meanwhile, yeah, I think I sent Peter one thing in the, like I, I, um, uh, uh, this was through a bunch of blogs, a bunch of people in blogs were writing on the question of like, um, does your, um, sort of, does your identity, like, you know, being a woman or your race, um, have any kind of argumentative bearing in a conversation. Right. And so I wrote something on that in response to a bunch of pieces online, uh, and that was in the New York Times. Um, but um, I, other than that, I think it was just sort of podcasts. And then I started writing the column. And the column had a big, writing the column had a big effect on me um, because mm-hmm. it. it's um, by far the most editorial engagement that I get from, is with my editor at the point. Um, no other editor that I've ever worked with you know, New York Times, New Yorker, Boston Review, anywhere it comes close to how much work. Um, Anastasia Burke, who's my point editor, but then also some other people at the point who also read it and they like talk among themselves. And um, so, and that really sold me on the public philosophy thing, actually, because I was getting so much back from it in terms of somebody reading what I was writing and thinking about like, were they persuaded or not? (laughs) You know, that was sort of, um, that sort of, what Anastasia is thinking to herself when she's reading my piece. Here's why I'm not persuaded by this. And so I saw the, this is something readers don't see is like the giant gulf between how it looks when it starts and how good it can get by the end. And that's really motivating for me um, uh, to that, like I can improve something so much. Um, So I would say like, it's at that point that I started to just write more stuff. Um, It's almost like, even when I'm not working with Anastasia now I kind of have her in my head. And so my other pieces are better too. Um, yeah. A lot of writers who have good relationships with editors use that same metaphor of kind of internalizing the editor's voice as they go forward, even in the absence of that editor, how as a philosopher who um, is often writing pieces that are, if not technically philosophy in a kind of philosophical spirit, probing questions, making arguments and so on. Um, how similar and how different do you see the conversations that you have? I mean, Anastasia Berg is herself also a philosopher, um, yeah. if I'm right. So how, how, how similar and how different are those conversations uh, that lead to the refining of a piece 
um, from the conversation you might have with a colleague that lead to the kind of refining of a philosophical argument in a different context? Are they the same? Are they different? There's a big variety within the conversations I have with Anastasia. Some of them really are just philosophy arguments. And those mm-hmm. always end, almost always end with Anastasia still not being totally satisfied. <laughs> like, so they don't get resolved in a way. They're just like, okay, here's a response to that. Or here's a, re- you know, um, it, 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 we don't, we kind of don't get the opportunity to pursue the conversation itself in a no holds barred way. Cause we're thinking about, that conversation frame within the piece, but still it is a philosophy disagreement. So there are those, but sometimes there are just things where she's like, you know, the rhetoric of this is a little bit weird or um, you have too many examples um, or, um, you know, you need to somehow, you've sort of lost the reader's attention and the way to pull it back is to um, draw back on the example that you started with that sort of thing. So, so plenty of the things she has to say are about like the the way that I think about it is that she's thinking about it from the point of view of a reader. uh, What, like all the things that would go into the readers being compelled and persuaded and having their attention held by the piece. Mm -hmm. And some of that is just the structure of the argument, but not all of it. And one thing about a publication like The Point, which is, you know, from an academic standpoint, you know, very kind of public minded and outwardly facing. Um, But from a kind of, you know, from the standpoint of kind of your everyday reader, it's still a fairly academic publication in the sense Mm -hmm. that it kind of arises from an academic community. A lot of academics contribute to it. Um, uh, When you're writing for a place like The Point, as opposed to you know, a really smart publication like The New Yorker, um, do you find yourself kind of uh, adjusting registers at all? Do you still find yourself thinking, uh, allowing yourself to feel more free to be kind of academic for a publication like The Point? Or are you are you always operating in kind of a similar mode wherever you're writing? I think maybe um, a, um, a relevant fact about me is that I have never been that comfortable writing in the sort of academic register. Mm -hmm. So I am happy to get away from it. And I'm not like longing to get back as much as possible to that. Um, So I don't experience writing for the point as being very different from writing for the New Yorker. Mm -hmm. I have a little more space in the New Yorker. (laughs) So that's, um, I can be a little longer. Um, That that's nice. Um, Um, and the New York Times is like a little shorter than like the point. So like, that's mostly how I think about them, the difference between the, the, those three, for instance. Um, um, but I, I don't think, um, I don't think that my, the way I write um, is very different for these different publications. Um, I think that the longer the piece the more in some way, the more academic it's going to be. So like my Boston review Mm -hmm. um, piece, because it was like four or 5,000 words, like there was a lot of argumentation Mm -hmm. that I could get in there. And so it's mostly that it's mostly a difference in length. And what about how, I mean, you're doing all this writing. I know that you have a, you're working on a book for a trade press as well. Um, How do you balance this with your academic work uh, or your scholarly work? Are you doing less scholarly work? Are you simply doing your scholarly work in different venues now? How do you how do you see the balance between those two things? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a little unsure. So 
it's sort of in the past year that I've done a lot more of the public philosophy and I'm actually not sure mm-hmm. what that's going to mean um, in terms of the academic work. So like, I guess I say no a lot more now when I'm asked to contribute something to a collected volume. Um, of academic work. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I think about like, well, mm-hmm. what's like the marginal value of that piece in comparison with, what I could produce if I put it in a publication where people will actually read it. (laughs) And so like, it's kind of demotivating. Um, uh, And there's a lot of collected volumes in academia and it's a, it's a popular genre. And I think it's not a great genre in that they don't get read that much. And I like, I think one thing that motivates people to produce them is that there are occasions for people to publish like, um, you know, in terms of the journal system being overloaded, right? Mm-hmm. But um, at that point, I'm like, well, let I have tenure. Let others <laughs> publish in these. You know, get if they need the credential. Um, uh, and uh, I, I think I have become a bit um, uh, disenchanted with academic publication, like over the past few years, as well. Kind of coincident with doing more public philosophy. Mm-hmm. In that, I, I guess I think um, it's now that I see how much can be done to make a piece of philosophy something that people want to read, I really think we should do more of that. And the fact that the norm in academia is to pay zero attention to what would make somebody want to read your piece is, I see that as a problem. And it's it's not that I think that it should be the norm that all everything that's written is kind of um, grabs your attention in some way, but there should be more of that, I guess. Um, So some of it is like, I'll probably do a bit less, less of it just because um, I actually have less confidence that the work I'm putting into the piece is, has enough value to justify that time as opposed to other ways that I could be using that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. How does, how does, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, that you, you had a, you created a blog just for the purposes of, of replying to, uh, Tyler Cowan. Um, and I remember that post, um, really vividly, the progress in, in philosophy post, um, which is interesting because that's just another simple example of how, um, you know, something was sort of self-published, but attached you know, I, I don't know how I found the link, but, you know, I must have found it through social media or something like that. Um, and um, and I read something by yours, that, uh, you know, of yours that I wouldn't have read otherwise. So that's interesting. How does Twitter play into this? Because um, I know you're you're pretty active on Twitter and a lot of, you know, what you do on Twitter is, um, you know, not particularly, you know, distinctive to your being a philosopher or anything like that. Um, but there are a lot of philosophers on Twitter and a lot of them follow each other. And, um, and occasionally I've seen tweets of yours where you will throw out a, you know, a provocative question or assert, you know, uh, a, a provocative opinion that you hold without necessarily, you know, signaling that you're not going to get into the argument, but you just want to kind of get it out there. And, um, it, how is that complement, um, some of these efforts to kind of, you know, draw in people to what you're doing or thinking about or to engage with other philosophers. I guess what, what my question is, what do you, what do you make of philosophy Twitter? Is there such a thing? What's it good for? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I would say Twitter is actually a really big part of the feedback system in that 
Um, I think if I weren't on Twitter, I wouldn't have that much of a sense that people are reading the things that I write. Uh -huh. um, so Twitter gives me a sense of that. So that's kind of nice. Um, and then sometimes they also respond. Um, usually it's not, um, they don't respond that much though. I don't get a lot of feedback in the sense of here were their views about it. It's mostly like most people like it and then a small group of people hate it. Um, and that's what I get, you know, but even that is like, okay, someone's reading it. Um, I like being on Twitter. Um, like, I think I do it just cause it's fun. And, um, it's a form of interaction that I enjoy. I enjoy the superficiality of it and the way in which I don't have an obligation to respond to people <laughs> or to continue a conversation beyond the point where I feel like it. Um, and uh, I wrote about that. Uh, one of the things I wrote for the New York Times was sort of about that, about the appeal of these um, modes of interaction in which you have just a lot of agential control over your entry into and exit from the interaction. Um, that doesn't have much to do with philosophy. That's just why Twitter's fun for me. Um, philosophically, like, yeah, I, so I... Um, when I first started in academia, when I first went to grad school, I just went to classics grad school, I noticed that there are sort of two kinds of intellectuals, I think. One kind is like people who have a few ideas, but they're really, and they really work on them for a long period and they kind of perfect them. And they're like these beautiful jewels. Like a and, Rawls. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, um, in classics, actually, most of the people were like that. Like they would mm -hmm. just sort of very carefully work their way into something. Um, and then I was not one of those people. I'm one of those people who I have like 20 ideas over the course of a day and they're mostly terrible, but I like saying them and I like hearing back what people think. And like most of them, I'm just going to dump and I'll dump them kind of immediately. And Twitter is like a good environment for someone like that <laughs> because people being like dismissive or whatever, like it's not gonna, like, I think if you have the, the, you know, the first thing where it's like this precious thing that's kind of vulnerable and you wouldn't want to expose it. Um, then it wouldn't be a great place to sort of showcase that idea. But for if you just have a whole bunch of bad ideas and you put them on Twitter, it's like fine. So like if you're, John Rawls would have been terrible on Twitter, Robert yeah. Nozick would have been brilliant on Twitter. He would have been amazing on Twitter, yes. He had every idea he had was fantastically interesting and then he moved on to something else and never revisited anything. Exactly. And he, um, was, he had a kind of pithy, the way he writes too, would have been great for Twitter. Yeah. That's interesting. And one thing I don't know anything about other than that I see mentions of it on Twitter are all these kind of public events that you do. It sounds like they're mostly in Chicago, although maybe I may be wrong about that, um, where you do kind of public disputations or, um, you, you know, you were talking about the thing you're doing with film, which sounds like it would ordinarily have been held in a public physical space. Um, you happen to be doing it on Zoom right now. Um, well, tell me what those are about, what the point of them is and how they connect or don't to this project of doing philosophy in a non kind of academic, uh, forum. Yeah. And maybe like, now that I think about it, sorry, reconstructing, I haven't thought like, I haven't like spent a lot of time thinking about like the process of this transformation, but, um, um, but now that I think about it, actually a really crucial part of me moving to do public philosophy is that, um, right after I got tenure, I became the director of undergraduate studies. So I'm running the undergrad program essentially at UChicago uh, in philosophy. And so that means, you know, things like 
I advise students on their, it's not a very noble <laughs> position. Like um, it's not like <laughs> an honorific. I don't get any money for it or, you know, anything like that, but it's just so like, just to, because director sounds like a big deal, but it's not, it's not like being department chair or anything, but it means that I'm thinking about the undergrad program and I'm thinking about um, events for students. I'm looking over our event list. You know, I kind of noticed that all our events were things like, so you want to be a philosophy major. So you want to write a BA thesis. So you want to go to grad school. Mm-hmm. They were literally called that. And I'm like, we don't have any philosophy events. Like, why do we only have these sort of managerial events about like, you know, um, how to organize your courses or whatever? Like, this sounds kind of boring. We should have like events about philosophy. And so I thought, but the problem with events about philosophy is that it's quite, it kind of sounds like it's going to be another class, right. you know? And so I'm like, how can I do an event that will be really clear that it's not a class? And so I was like, the first thing is it has to be late at night. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I started this event series called Night Owls in which, um, uh, you know, I have like an interlocutor and they're people from an all different field. So not necessarily philosophers. Uh, so Tyler Cameron was one of the people who came out. Um, and um, we just uh, have some question and basically I talk to them for about an hour, sort of back and forth. And then we open it up to students for like another two hours. So they're pretty long. They run until midnight. And um, they, and the first one that I did, I had no money. So that, that like, just to give you a sense of that, it's not a very, uh, uh, <laughs> I remember I asked, like when I first got the, you know, accepted the, that, that I would have this, um, position as a director of understanding, I'm like, what's my, um, what's my budget? <laughs> it was like zero dollars. <laughs> so it kind of comes with nothing. So I was like, okay. Um, you know, so I did this, the first event I, I did it in the only campus room I could get for free, which was like in the basement of a building. Uh, and I had like a hundred people show up into this tiny little room wow. and then I was able to beg for more money. And so we, we moved up in the same building to the, to this nice room, uh-huh. um, that cost money. Um, so uh, they've been really popular. Um, we've had, you know, like two, 300 people showing up to them, to the in-person events, which um, like if you're in the world of, you know, college event planning is a lot of people to show up to an event. Um, so, and, you know, both philosophy majors and non-majors uh, and they've become kind of like a cult U Chicago thing. Um huh. Uh, so we have t-shirts, we have tote bags now. (laughs) Um, um, and then, you know, this quarter, like I I obviously had to cancel my spring quarter events and I was running it this year, even though I was on leave. Cause I was like, I didn't want to stop it cause I was losing Mm -hmm. momentum. And so, but I had two events in the spring quarter, but I had to cancel them. And then I'm like, I was very sad about that and about like just sad about the spring quarter and how we were having this online quarter at UChicago, like other schools went online, but we had a whole online quarter you know, with nothing happening basically because everything was canceled. And so I'm like, I'm going to do night owls online and I'm going to do it instead of just having two events for the quarter, I'm going to do it every week. So I had an event every week. We just had our, well, we just had our last one, but then I added a bonus one in two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, I'm kind of, I'm on leave this year. I'm kind of in teaching withdrawal basically. And so I'm like, you know, creating events so that I can like do some teaching. Um, uh, So, and they're really fun and they are, chances to ask 
I think philosophical questions that just don't get asked in philosophy classrooms. So I did one on philosophy of divorce with my ex-husband. That mm-hmm. was really well attended because he's also a faculty <laughs> member at UChicago. So everybody wanted to show up and like hear the gossip. Um, we actually couldn't fit the students in the room. Um, wow. We had to just like send people out. They were like crowded into like every corner of the room. Um, you know, we did, I did the philosophy of sex this quarter. I did um, um, artificial intelligence, um, like war, gangs, and violence with an um, economist who works on um, kind of gang gang violence. And um, uh, I've just done uh, this. I mean, this quarter, uh, you know, we had a lot of them. So um, <laughs> um, most t- topics you can think of. Um, now, how are you preparing? Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but how are you preparing for all these conversations with all these different? you know, people in econ- economics or sociologists who do, you know, criminologists or whatever. How do, uh, do you do you do a lot of preparation for these kinds of things or do you kind of uh, trust your uh, skills as a kind of Socratic interlocutor to uh, just kind of carry yeah. the day? How does that work? I have to prepare. So uh-huh. the way I do it is um, I have to prepare. I have to do quite a bit of reading and I'm really bad at um, learning things by myself. That's mm-hmm. why I'm in a university. So I actually created another thing called study groups in connection with the night owls. So I meet with a group of students for four evenings before the night owls event. Um, and we have readings and we talk through some of the issues. And then I, from those events, I like gather what like the best questions were that we came up with. And then I bring those up, but also mm-hmm. those students come to the event and they're like this like seed group that like has a lot of background knowledge and has like a really, you know, so they, they ask so really good plants, questions. Plants in the audience. Exactly. That's, that's it. Plants. <laughs> yeah. They're like plants. Um, like, and sometimes they really are. I'm like, sometimes someone will ask a question to go, like, you have to ask that at the event. Like, don't forget. That's a really good one. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, which basically is just kind of, as you can see, like kind of just multiplying the work in a bunch of different dimensions. But I found that events with non-philosophers work really well. And it's a great way to get students from around the university who are not philosophy majors interested in coming to events. Um, So yeah, like the one I did last night was with someone from cinema and media studies. And we talked about Casablanca. Um, uh, But um, um, but this quarter, I mean, I did one with my kids. Um, that one didn't require a lot of prep. <laughs> it was on what is it like to be a child? Um, so they vary in how much prep they require, but ones that are like in different fields. Um, but also like I did one with a philosopher, um, the philosophy of sex. And like, mm-hmm. it was just not a topic I thought about or read about or knew anything about. And so I did have to do a bunch of reading. So even when it's a philosopher, quite often I'll just, ha- I still have to do a bunch of reading. That's really interesting. Okay, so I'd like to end by asking you one kind of practical question and then one kind of theoretical question about this kind of public philosophy. The practical mm-hmm. question is just, uh, you know, how do you, um, I'm curious just about your kind of um, process, you know, do you, um, about how you go about getting pieces published. Do you, um, do you take a lot of assignments and ideas from editors, uh, you know, looking to, uh, you know, for you to write on a particular thing or do you tend to, you know, write what you like and then just kind of look for a forum that's interested in it. Um, uh, how do you, or both of those things? Well, I'm just curious how you tend to approach it as a, is, you know, you're, 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 um, a lot of your stuff feels highly idiosyncratic. It feels like it emerges from your particular mind and obsessions, like, you know, um, 
But other pieces you do about the you know the, the pandemic or the lockdown feel like things that an editor might have assigned to you or asked you to write about. I've never been clear on 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 how you how you approach that. Yeah, so I think one thing that's really lucky for me is that I have the column where I can always write something and then, you know, send it to someone, the New York Times in New Yorker and be like, hey, do you want this? If not, I'll run it in my column. Um, And so because of that, Uh I feel less of a need to look for or take Mm -hmm. like assignments. Um, uh, Plus I'm not like, you know, this is not like, uh, uh, I don't need this for a source of income. Right. So I, I, right. I haven't, I don't think I have ever, like there have been one, once Peter came to me with a suggestion and then I was just kind of like, no, I can't think of anything to say about that. So I didn't write it. Um, mm-hmm. And um, sometimes the people at the point have had things where like, Oh, we'd love to hear what you have to say about this, but I haven't actually ended up writing. I'm not opposed to it, but um, um but I think I've I've mostly yeah I think I've just ended up writing things. One thing I have done is sometimes I have a thought like I could write something on this and I think it would be good and then I will like send it you know like a, to the um, New Yorker guy and he'll be like yeah that sounds good write that and then I write it so so that would be like a pitch. Um, so but that's not an assignment. It's just that I don't write the whole thing before sending it to him. Right, right. And um, so my theoretical question for you is. Um, I, I don't know if it was your very, I think it was your very first column for the point was called, um, is public philosophy good? Um, and, uh, in it, you offered, you know, some, some reasons why you thought it, it might not be good or why it, it wasn't actually, um, philosophy, the things that we call public philosophy. But at the end you sort of suggested, so the question was why, if you have these views, why are you writing a public philosophy column? And you had a nice formulation where you said that you, you didn't know if it, if it was good or not. And you were, uh, you wanted to find out, um, so I'm curious uh, what you have found out. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that one thing that I found, one benefit that I found from it that I wouldn't have expected is that um, being forced to put my own thoughts in like a, like a very simple form makes me know what I think about a lot of things. <laughs> like I have all these views now um, <laughs> that I didn't have before. Um, and I, I have like a much better sense of what I think about things um, than I did. And like in philosophy, it's one thing is I wouldn't have written on all of these topics because I would have been like more careful and taken way more time and just done like one or two of them. Right. Um, but also it, um, you know, there's a way in which like, putting things publicly just requires you to put them simply. And one way to think about that is just to think about all the philosophers, all the famous philosophers who've ever lived. Like the really famous ones are the ones where like you can say one sentence and that's their view, right? Like there's, they, they survive in kind of meme form and that's, that's what it is for them to be public. Right. And so I've found that like, I can, now I now have a sense almost of like what it is that I like stand for as a philosopher more than I did before. Um, that's like a benefit. Um, a, um, a downside is, um, that, um, I think that, um, I'm sort of uncomfortable with, um, 
my own rhetorical powers a little bit. Like, like I think I'm quite charming as a writer and I worry that I Mm -hmm. persuade people by being charming and um, that people was was that Plato's concern? Um, Plato, I've been thinking about that. Pla- no, no, Plato had a different. So Plato had that concern about oratory. He had a slightly different concern about writing, right, which okay. is that writing doesn't talk back, um, uh, and so writing is not like a conversation. Um, I think he was right that it doesn't talk back and that it's not a conversation, but I think he was wrong to think, therefore, that there is no relationship between the writer and the reader and that that relationship can't have like philosophical Mm. import in terms of shaping the way the writer thinks. Um, So that's something I disagree with Plato on. And so I'm I'm not sort of worried about that, but I'm worried that like um, um, people like... I often feel like I wish I could write more in a way that would make people dislike me um, in the sense that, mm. um, you know, uh, they, um, they sh- to be peeled away from my writing in some sense, to be peeled away from the content. Be like, I don't like her, but that was a good point or something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, right. so like, like, like something that I don't do and that I have criticized other people not other particular people for doing, but I've criticized sort of the politicization of philosophy where it's like you kind of um, have like your allies and your point that you're making. And then the people who like that point will agree with you like that. That's problematic, I think. But I do just a different problematic thing, which is kind of like the cult of personality, right? Where people will agree with me because they like me, right? And that's not any better than being, than the politicization. It's the same sort of problem, right? It's just in a different place. Um, So, um, but that was not something I had anticipated either in that piece. In that piece, I anticipated the worries about politicization, um, about the idea that philosophy is just going to be deployed for, you know, a particular side of a dispute. Um, and I don't think I'm so susceptible to that, but I think that I am susceptible to wanting to be liked, um, and, um, good at knowing how to achieve that end. And it does worry me that that, in effect, if I'm telling, if I'm, if I'm being likable, then I'm telling people what they want to hear and I'm not thinking for myself. Fascinating. In that piece, you did raise a question about um, maybe a, a kind of a somewhat um, parallel question about entertainment value, uh, uh, which yes, seems somewhat akin right. to this. Maybe you can explain a little bit what that worry was. Yeah. So like the idea was either philosophy is useful in the sense of being um, subordinate to political ends or useless and it's just for fun. And I want philosophy to be neither of those things. I want it to be sort of transformative in the sense that like it tells you what to care about rather than, um, you know, it helps you pursue goals you had anyway. That's the sort of politicization or it's what you do on your time off. Um, and, um, you know, the kind of the worry or the delicate thing is like, if philosophy is going to be transformative, then in some sense, you need to sort of lead people into thinking in like a new way. And that does require some oratorical skill. It requires writing in a compelling way. It requires holding people's attention. So all these things are like necessary, I think, to that. But, you know, there's just a worry that like it can be too heavy handed. Right, right. Um, and and what are you doing, if anything, to um, to uh, to kind of uh, address the, um, the the worry about um, about uh, 
about kind of likability? Is it just a worry or you, or do you find yourself taking steps to, uh, you know, scrutinize pieces when you finish them to try to, to, you know, to de-likeify yourself or, um, or do you, are you finding yourself avoiding certain topics or trying to write on topics where you come off more darkly or anything like that? Yeah. I think that all of those things, like the thing is that like, it's a weird, there's a very weird and deep paradox here that I don't understand because the more unlikable I try to be, the more likable I actually become. <laughs> and no, it's su- it's super like, I should write about this because <laughs> it's super interesting, right? Because I'll be like, I will write about how I was such a jerk to my sister, you know, or something like that. And then people will just love it and they'll identify with me all the more. And I can, t- I can tell there's other people out there who I see, like what they're, I see that they're trying to be likable and like, it's just transparent. And so people don't like it. <laughs> like, it, um, like it, I guess, I guess it's like, there's this struggle. There's this like battle that I'm engaged in where the reader can tell that I have in mind their representation of me and I get it. And like, I get what, what they're doing with that. Right. And so I think that partly makes what I'm writing exciting to read. Um, yeah. It, um, and, um, and so, but yes, I think that that back and forth of like, um, you know, like, like, I want you to think I'm a bad parent. Go ahead. <laughs> right. I'm going to tell, I'm going to give you stories about my kids that are not stories about how I triumph as like this amazing parent. Right. Um, and, um, you know, but like, I see people like on social media who are just like, it's just obvious that they want to be seen as a good parent. And like, I'm so sympathetic. To that. Like, I can't tell you how sympathetic I am to that. <laughs> Cause I'm like, I, if I could just do that, everyone would stop liking me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I think it's like, I do tons of, it's not that I don't do anything. It's that everything I do is self-destructive, like in the sense of like, you know, not just straightforwardly leading to my end. Um, like it's, it's, it's some, it's a kind of goal that you can't quite um, get it. And I, now that I, now that I do it, I see it in other philosophers too. Like I see that other philosophers struggle with the same thing. Schopenhauer, philosophers who can write basically struggle mm-hmm. with being likable and like Schopenhauer does it and Nietzsche does it. And it's like, and like, you can just feel them being like, stop liking me. I'm going to be a jerk. And then we just like them all the more for that. And so <laughs> it's a kind of dynamic that actually shows up, I think in a bunch of different places in the history of philosophy. That's fascinating. Well, Agnes, I don't think anyone's doing more interesting um, uh, public philosophy today than you are. And I know that no one is thinking about it in more interesting ways than you are. Um, So I really appreciate your taking the time to talk um, with me today. And and, and I hope we can talk again um, sometime soon. Yeah, it was fun. (laughs) Thanks again. Thank you again so much for listening to Line Edit. I'm James Ryerson. You can find out more about our Beyond the Ivory Tower workshops and about the Line Edit audio and video project by following us on Twitter at the Line Edit. That's the underscore line underscore edit. We are very grateful to the John Templeton Foundation for its support and for the amazing staff at its public engagement program. The foundation supports work about the fundamental questions of what the universe is like and what it is to be human. And it's the public engagement program that ensures that our attempts to answer those questions are disseminated to the public. This episode was produced and hosted by me, James Ryerson, and produced and edited by Joseph Fridman. Theme music was by Stephen LaRosa at Wonderboy Audio. We are especially grateful to the administrators at the Department of Psychology at Northeastern University who manage this project. Thank you to professors Lisa Feldman Barrett and Dave DeSteno at Northeastern, without whom these workshops and podcasts would not be possible. And of course, 
to Agnes Callard for the conversation. I'm sure you're as excited as I am for her forthcoming book, The World Socrates Made. And I hope you'll join us next time for Line Edit.